lovely to see you. Um, a warm welcome to you if you're joining us online. Um, my name's Josh, and it's uh, great to be with you, to share with you uh, from the Word this morning. Uh, did anyone enjoy the rugby on Friday? <laughs> oh, I won't say any more as a contemporary. Um, I just feel that because Matt Mesler is not here as often, I just sort of have to hold the torch and just keep on sort of putting it out there. Um, anyway, let's move on real quick. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to get into it. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from you. We pray that you would speak to us afresh this morning as we gather in your name. Amen. Well, a few years ago, I went on my first uh, extended silent retreat, and it was at Peel Forest, this beautiful section of native bush in South Canterbury. And the air was crisp, uh, the bird song was beautiful, it was a kind of serene atmosphere. About 20 of us gathered for three days, and we punctuated the silence with shared liturgical prayers in the morning and in the evening. I read books by the fire, um, sat in stillness, took long walks. It was outstanding, and I highly recommend doing this kind of thing. But in the moments that followed this retreat, I've never experienced such dissonance, such a clash between my everyday life and what happened on that retreat. At the time, we had two kids, uh, one toddler and a baby, and my incredible wife, Jo, had taken one for the team. Um, while I was in the woods contemplating the holy, she was cooking meals, wiping bums, and living the exhausting and glorious chaos that life is with young children. Uh, jo came to pick me up from the retreat space. I jump in the car uh, and uh, said hi to the kids. And as we headed down the road, our toddler absolutely lost it, screaming about something. I have no idea what it was. Um, that's often the case. Um, but as these screams resounded, it felt like an assault on my very being. The sound, in comparison to the silence, was like death metal played at 100 decibels. And about 10 minutes into the ride, uh, I also managed to get into a fight with Joe. <laughs> awesome, eh? Again, I can't recall what it was about. I think I've actually blocked it out. You know how your brain does that to kind of cope? Yeah. Um, and by the time we got home, I felt like any spiritual calm which I felt was sitting with me had been just kind of squashed, crushed to a pulp. And I guess what I figured out real quick, actually, was that I, um, I wasn't living in a monastery. Who knew, right? Um, but the, the brutal contrast between uh, the space over here and my actual reality was so stark and so real in that moment. My reality is not a serene monastery with birdsong and peaceful walks. My regular reality is um, more like this. It's, more, it's a busy life with three kids. This is it, um, busy activities, on the road, balancing study and work and all the complexities of life. And for many of you, that's the case too. Not all of us have young kids at home. Um, for some, the pressures will be different. But we'll all have uh, something, whether it's work to do, people to care for, places to be, and kind of regular pressures. And we might wonder, how does prayer work in those spaces what was Paul getting at when he wrote to the Thessalonians and said, pray without ceasing? Pray without ceasing. How is that possible? 
Here at St. Augustine's together, we've been exploring uh, and journeying through a series on prayer. And today I'm going to be inviting us to reflect on the idea of life as prayer. That is living a prayerful life. And our very life itself becoming an act of prayer. I'm aware that we'll have a vast variety of experiences in the room when it comes to prayer. But wherever we're at, I hope as we reflect on Scripture together this morning, that we'll hear that the invitation for prayer is for every single person. That in whatever circumstances we find ourselves in, our very life can become one of prayer. Since this monastery moment, God's been at work in my life, teaching me to embrace where I am, to embrace my reality, and to learn how to be a person of prayer in that space. The key question I want us to ask this morning is this, what does it look like for my very ordinary life to be holy? In other words, what does it look like for my life to be set apart as an act of worship to God? To live a life that becomes prayer is to live a holy life, and to live a holy life is to live a life of worship. Um, We'll dive more into what holiness means uh, a bit later, but first it's important to note that the question I'm asking actually comes from a deep conviction that the prayer of, sorry, that the holy life is for every single person. It's not just for some people in monasteries. God calls all of us to a holy life. And we hear this in today's reading from Scripture. At the very end of the passage in Colossians 3, Paul invites the people in Colossae to a holy life. He says, and whatever you do, whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. Give thanks to God the Father through him. Whatever you do, all of life, we're invited not to compartmentalize some aspects of life, such as church going and reading our Bible, hanging out with Christian friends as the kind of sacred parts, and then the rest is secular. Uh, whatever you do, all of life. Yet this problem of compartmentalizing haunts many of us. When we compartmentalize, we shut off some aspects of our life to God. We kind of push God away from them, and we shut off some aspects uh, from potential transformation and healing and growth. Holiness isn't compartmentalizing. Rather, it's an invitation for all of our life, for our whole life, to become an act of worship. Paul invites us not to break things up. He says, whatever you do, do it all in the name of Jesus. So what might that look like? Well, I'd like to suggest that at its heart, living a life of prayer looks like embracing reality. It looks like embracing reality on two levels. The first level is embracing the reality of our own life, our own circumstances, where we live, who we live with, our work, our talents, our weaknesses, our limits, the places that we inhabit. The second level is embracing the reality of what God has done for us in Christ. Colossians paints this beautiful picture of what this involves, and that's what we're going to explore um, this morning. But first, what might it mean to embrace our very life, our own reality, the space where God is at work in our ordinary and in the mundane? Of course, the temptation is to think, if only, right? If only I had the time, my prayer life would be amazing. If only I had patience like that person, And that's something, I'll tell you what, I've prayed for patience a lot. Anyone else? No? Okay. Maybe not. Um, If only my circumstances were different. If only things were easier. 
But the beautiful gospel that Jesus comes announcing is that the kingdom of God is at hand. It's at hand. The time is now. Right now, where you are, God will meet you. The kingdom of God is at hand. The challenge to be present, though, to God every day isn't a new one. It's one people have always struggled with, even before uh, social media, believe it or not. Um, the early desert fathers and mothers had a term to describe our actually avoidance of our very reality itself. And the word is acedia. Acedia. And it was a term coined by Evagrius, a fourth century monk. Acedia was also referred to as the noonday demon. It was named this because it was understood to commonly afflict monks in the lazy hours of the afternoon. You know, the kind of post-lunch slump. Oh, I can't get much done right now. That kind of feeling. Uh, the word acedia has often been translated as sloth, and it kind of morphed as it became included in the seven deadly sins. But it means more than this. It refers to a kind of spiritual apathy, what one writer calls a metaphysical boredom. It's an interesting term, a metaphysical boredom. Um, a philosopher, R.J. Snell, he comments on it, and he says this, Acedia reveals frustration and hate, disgust that place in life itself. In Acedia, the monk abhors what God has given, namely reality and the limits of order, especially the limits of one's own selfhood. It is a destructive hatred of whatever particular good is given to the monk by God. In Acedia, the monk longs for a better place because he abhors what is there and fantasizes about what is not. Uh, I was like, man, that's, that feels like it names some stuff. Um, at the heart of this word is the idea of indifference. Indifference to our own lives um, and indifference to God. It's a spiritual shoulder shrug, a kind of meh at the wonder of life itself. Uh, St. Augustine reflected a lot on this notion of spiritual sluggishness. He spoke of weariness with living and the way that we so easily miss the wonder of everyday life. He pondered this. He said, isn't the daily course of nature itself a miracle, something to be wondered at? Everything is full of marvels and miracles, but they are so common that we regard them as cheap and of no account. Quite a few theologians have recently sought to rediscover this word acedia because it names the kind of malaise of modern society so well. It describes the way we can so easily distract ourselves in order to avoid truly being present to, to our life as it is. It can be hard to accept God as present where we are right now in whatever circumstances we find ourselves. We might think, if only this happened, if only the setting was right, God would turn up. If only I could do this, or if only I could do that, if only I had this resource, it would, it would all be okay. Let me at this point just give a quick caveat, though, an important one. I'm not saying we shouldn't have ambition or to dream and have a vision for what God is calling us to. Neither should we accept reality where it's contrary to what God would want for us or for the people around us. This isn't a plea for accepting our lot, especially when that lot's awful. This is not an argument for quietism in the face of injustice. Please hear that. This idea cannot be used to justify injustice. But the point's in fact the opposite. The idea of embracing our reality is to wake up 
to what's before us. The real moments of grace and goodness. The real moments of challenge and the need for stuff to change. To name a cedia is to attempt to counter disengagement, to counter distracted daydreaming, and that kind of spiritual procrastination which comes so easily for every single one of us. The big point is that we're invited to recognize God in the ordinary work and the ordinary day-to-day stuff of our life. What else do we have? It's to wake up to our reality. Um, One of the most interesting resources that I found helpful um, is this one uh, for further reading, uh, The Liturgy of the Ordinary by Trish Harrison Warren. She has ways of praying when you make your bed, eat meals, fight with your spouse, sit in traffic, and even brushing your teeth. I think all of which I've managed to do this week. So um, there we go. Uh, You know, the point is that there's some great resources here in terms of prayer um, and engaging this. So the first piece in embracing reality is to be able to pay attention to our own life and acknowledge God in the mundane, everyday reality. The second, and I would argue the most important piece, we find in today's reading from Colossians, that is the reality of what God has done for the world, for us, in Jesus Christ. The letter to the Colossians, it's like, just go home and read it. Sit down with a cup of coffee and read the whole thing. It's short, it's beautiful, it's this big picture of what God has done through Jesus. It's a breathtaking letter that if we let it speak to us, it will leave us in awe of the magnitude of the good news of Jesus. And in the first chapter, Paul outlines who Jesus is and what Jesus has accomplished in his life, his death and resurrection. And just as I read it, just see how broad and kind of beautiful this is. We read this in chapter 1. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For in him all things in heaven and on earth were created, things visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or powers. All things have been created through him and for him. He himself is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church, He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him, God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace through the blood of his cross. All right? Paul sketches here the way that in Christ, God has reconciled all things to himself. In Christ, God is healing this broken world. New creation has burst forth in his resurrection. And this reconciling work of God is what Paul then speaks to in chapter 3 of Colossians, which we read uh, today. Paul in chapter 1 uses big cosmic language to refer to God reconciling all things. And in chapter 3, he zooms in, and he applies this to the Christians at Colossae, saying this, So if you have been raised with Christ, and you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ and God, you also will be revealed with him in glory. You see the point that Paul's making? You share in what Jesus has done. This big, beautiful gospel 
you are included. Jesus is at the center of Paul's vision. And he invites the Colossians and he invites us as we read it to put Jesus at the center of our vision too. And as is so characteristic of Paul's writing, first he reminds us of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. And then he reminds us that we share in this work, that we're swept up in it. He urges the Colossians and us to live in light of this reality. And the very um, heart of this passage is a central image of putting on new clothes, of getting a new outfit. Verse 9, Paul says, Seeing you have stripped off the old self with its practices and have clothed yourselves with the new self. And he repeats this admonition twice, again saying, Clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. And clothe yourselves with love. He implores the Colossians to get rid of things too, to get rid of anger and wrath, malice, slander, and abusive language. All of these kind of relationally destructive traits, get rid of those things. And there's a kind of putting off and a putting on here. The Colossians, really, they're invited to live in the new reality of what God has done in Christ. And so are we. This passage makes it clear our very ordinary lives are transformed by Jesus and continuously transformed by Jesus. The people of Colossae are essentially being called to be holy. And so coming back to that word holiness, to be holy is to be set apart, but not in a weird way. Please. (laughs) Um, We all know what that looks like, maybe. Um, Not in a disconnected way. Um, or in a kind of way where we sit back and judge everybody else. But to be set apart or to be holy is an invitation actually to become more like Jesus, to live into that reality Paul is talking about, for our very lives to be shaped in a pattern after his, that our life might reflect God's love in the world. In the book of Leviticus, which actually could be summed up as a book of holiness, God calls the people of Israel to live a life in light of him rescuing them and setting them free as a people. And we read this in Leviticus 20, verse 7. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am the Lord your God. Keep my statutes and observe them. I am the Lord. I sanctify you. Notice those last three words. I sanctify you. So to sanctify is to set something apart and make it holy, right? And so here the emphasis is on God's action. Not that the people are called to come and muster up holiness, kind of like, you know, like squeeze it out, but rather that God does this. It's the same in Colossians. The holiness flows from God's people being uh, made holy through Christ. And yet, we're not to be passive. We're actually invited to respond, to be open to what God is doing. In Romans 12, Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to, be, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship, to present your bodies. There's an uh, invitation and a response here. According to Paul, our very lives can become an act of worship, a prayer itself. So, How can we live in this reality? The first thing is recognizing the reality of our own life, recognizing the reality of what God has done in Christ. How do we live in it? 
It's one thing to talk about it. Um, it's another to live it. And this morning, I want to invite us to encourage two ways, uh, sorry, encourage us to think about two ways we can engage in this reality. The first is to pay attention. That sounds so simple. I'll explain. And the second is to embrace practical holiness. So first, to live a prayerful life is to pay attention. Our attention is one of the most precious resources that we have. And yet we perhaps live in the most distracted age ever. Most of us will know what it feels like to realize that we've lost 20 minutes on Facebook and it felt like two. Uh, or we might find our time soaked up by um, Netflix or other forms of entertainment, only then to bemoan that we are too busy to pray. Tim Wu's book, The Attention Merchants, I think is a really good one on this. He says this, he observes, without express consent, most of us have passively opened ourselves up to the commercial exploitation of our attention just about anywhere and anytime. What is called for might be termed a human reclamation project. Over the coming century, the most vital human resource in need of conservation and protection is likely to be our own consciousness and mental space. If we think of our attention as a resource, or even a kind of currency, we must allow that it's always necessarily being spent. There's no saving it for later. The question is always, what shall I pay attention to? Great question. What shall I pay attention to? And in our passage in Colossians, we actually hear this too. In our passage in Colossians, attention features. Paul encourages us to seek the things that are above and to set your minds on things that are above. And the way I read that, that's clearly a plea for paying attention to what God has done in Christ. Uh, recently, I've joined a bunch of students at St. John's in a kind of entry-level Te Reo Māori class. And um, the other day, our teacher was describing the Māori word aroha, often translated as love. And he said something which just struck me as really beautiful and profound. He said that the word has origins in two words, aro and ha. Aro means to face, to turn towards, to take heed, to take notice of, to pay attention to. Aroha, translated love, encapsulates this idea of, of paying attention to. Oh, wow, that's incredible. You know, to love God in prayer is first simply, I think as this word beautifully captures for us, to pay attention to God, to turn our attention toward. To pray without ceasing is to pay attention in our daily reality to God. This has been called practicing the presence of God, a monk named Brother Lawrence said that we can make a private chapel of our own heart where we can retire from time to time to commune with God. Wherever we are, whatever we're doing, we can make a private chapel of our heart. And there are a bunch of ways that we can pay attention to God uh, during our day. Some people find cues helpful. Um, I keep a prayer rope in my pocket and um, when I put my hand in my pocket, to grab my phone, I'm actually reminded, oh, yeah, God's here. You know? Oh, I can take a moment to acknowledge God's presence, to thank God for this moment, or to pray for God's help in this moment, whatever this moment might be. People find all kinds of ways to remind themselves to practice the presence of God. 
Uh, Richard Foster gives some, I think, really good examples. He says this. School teachers can use the ringing of the bell to remind them to pray. Those whose favorite color is purple are reminded of God's continuous loving presence each time they see the color purple. Surgeons can be prompted to prayer by each scrub down as they prepare for an operation. The bank teller can pray whenever someone comes to the window. Washing dishes, making beds, waiting in supermarket lines, all can call us to prayer. All of it can call us to prayer. And one really helpful practice that Christians have used throughout the centuries is this idea, uh, this practice of breath prayer. And we have this print from um, Scott Erickson in our hallway at home, and whenever I look at it, I'm prompted to remember that my very breath comes from God, that God is the source of my life and the source of all that lives. And breath prayer acknowledges this. It's simply to pay attention to our breath in such a way that it becomes a prayer of gratitude and connection to God. Many people might pray something as they breathe in and something as they breathe out, either silently or kind of as they do. Um, for me, one that I've used regularly is to pray on the in-breath, Spirit of God, and on the out-breath, breathe in me. Spirit of God, breathe in me. And for me, it's just a simple invocation of the Holy Spirit in the midst of whatever is happening. Let me just say, though, it's not about technique. It's really not. And you might not be into it. Fine. Um, really, it's simply the invitation to acknowledge God with us regularly. That's the point. Another way we might do this is we might bookend our day by acknowledging that we live our day before God. That's the reality. We live every day before God. Morning and evening prayer are actually the staple diet of the Anglican tradition. Simply the idea of taking time to start our day and end our day with God will shape our attention and direct it toward God at work in the ordinary. To say that God is at work in the ordinary is not to say never have set times of prayer, just sort of waft around hoping that you might um, see God at work. Actually, these practices might shape our attention in such ways that we notice and that we're tuned in. We might start the day with, it could be a liturgy and finish the day with a liturgy. It could be, well, I, let me suggest it should be scripture at both ends. Um, or it might just simply be getting out of bed, sitting on the edge of your bed. Thank you, God, for today. Off we go. Get into bed before you close your eyes. Thank you, God, for today. Good night. But just that simple sense of bookending the day with God is a practice that I think is really helpful. So paying attention helps foster a prayerful life. But what about our very life itself becoming a prayer? For me, this is where the idea of practical holiness comes in. To embrace practical holiness is simply a way of saying, be open to God, transforming our lives by the power of the Spirit in our everyday so that we might become more like Jesus. Simply put, more walkie-walkie, less talky-talky. All the beautiful prayers without love are, as Paul reminds us, a clanging cymbal, a noisy gong, an annoying and unhelpful uh, noise. Prayers without love, um, unhelpful. The way we love each other actually starts to become the measure of our prayerfulness as a community and as individuals. And why I say practical holiness is I want to emphasize the concrete reality of this invitation. To the Colossians, Paul says, bear with one another. 
Love to know the stories behind that one, eh? Bear with one another. Forgive one another. Practice compassion and kindness. It's all really real and practical. It's the stuff of ordinary relationships in life and work. John Wesley once made the point that there is no spiritual holiness without social holiness, and vice versa. No spiritual holiness without social holiness. To be holy for our lives to become an act of worship is not an individual pursuit. The Christian faith is deeply social. God calls us together. The place where the rubber meets the road, when it comes to prayer, um, is to see uh, actually transformation in the concrete reality of our day-to-day life where God has placed us. So I think we could ponder this question today, and I think it's a really good one. Um, But the question is, uh, what does it look like for my life to be clothed in love? To live in that reality named in Colossians. And each of us, you'll be aware of the people and the situations where you have the opportunity to partner with God in love, to show practical holiness. So to sum up, I'm going to land. Uh, for our life to be a life of prayer is for us to open ourselves up to what God wants to do in the very ordinary and mundane parts of our lives. It's not all happening somewhere else. Don't believe that. It's not all happening out there in monasteries. And it's not me pulling them down. Those places are great where people pray and they come into prayer in that space. Good. But that's not where it's all happening. It's happening in your life. The invitation this morning is simply to be attentive to our own lives and to God. And as Paul reminds us in Colossians, God takes initiative in this process of prayer and invites us to come open to being transformed ever more into the likeness of Jesus so that we might be clothed in love. Can I pray for us as we finish? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you desire relationship with us, that you draw us into relationship with yourself through Christ. Help us right now, Lord, to be attentive to where you are prompting us, where you're speaking to us. Help us, Lord, to pay attention in our daily life to where you might be at work to notice you, We pray that this week afresh you would draw our attention to you, Lord. And we pray, Lord, that we might have opportunities to be clothed in that love, to notice that you've clothed us in love and to live that out, Lord. We pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would empower us afresh, that we might live the resurrection life you've called us to, Lord. We thank you for all that you've done for us, all that you're doing, all that you continue to do. And this morning, we open ourselves to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.